Major sponsors for this event include Las Palmas del Sol Healthcare, Gulf States Toyota, El Paso Community College, El Paso Electric, Raise Your Hand Texas, and the Borderplex Alliance. And foundation support is provided by the Simmons Foundation. Media support is provided by PBS El Paso, El Paso Times, KTSM, and KTEP. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Good to be with you. Um, I want to ask you, Congresswoman Escobar, as you are just a little bit more than one year in your current job as Congresswoman representing this community, uh, you had a perspective on what it was like in Washington before. You certainly hadn't been out of this conversation in your previous roles, but now you're right in the middle of it. Is it everything you expected? Well, good morning, Evan. Thank good morning. you so much. And thanks to everyone who is spending their morning with us. I'm really grateful that El Paso does always turn out. Um, you know, I, I was not quite sure what to expect. I mean, I, you know, I, I had an idea that, of the, you know, that Washington is, is broken and that getting anything done is really difficult. There have been some surprises along the way. Um, I never realized how difficult of a job it really is. Um, and it is probably the most challenging job I've ever had and ever will have in my life. Um, the, there's a lot to, to try to do. You've got to build relationships. You've got to um, work with folks that you don't know or, and sometimes whose values are different from yours. You have to work within a caucus. You have to work within the house itself. Um, and El Paso, as you know, has faced some pretty extraordinary challenges in 2019. And so I don't think that I had the typical freshman year, first year experience. Right. You couldn't have predicted what would happen over the course of that year, but you surely had a sense of how the border region was viewed in Washington, Congresswoman, right? I'm wondering, does the view of the border that you now encounter on a daily basis square with what you thought it was? What was really wonderfully surprising to me was the willingness of so many, obviously mostly within my own party, to, to really have their views of the border evolve. Because, it, I mean, if you'll recall, the wall and the funding for the wall um, occurred with Democratic votes as well as Republican votes. Right. And Democrats and Republicans alike have used the border in, in some respects as a political prop. You know, we've got to secure the border. That's, you know, a, a refrain you hear over and over and over again, um, knowing that politically, uh, you know, there, there's no end to what border security might mean because it works so well with everyone's base. And so I was expecting to, to have that same, that, that the battle about the narrative over the border with members of my own party. And believe me, I, I'm still having that debate with members of my own right. party. But um, I found an incredible willingness by my colleagues to come to El Paso to learn about El Paso. I've brought, in, in 2019, almost 20% of Congress to El Paso. At one point or another, has come down, right. Yeah. And it's important to see the border, to see this community, to fully understand it. It's one thing to legislate without seeing it, but it's another thing to actually come. Mr. Hunt, uh, Congresswoman Escobar is a Democrat. Fact check true. You are a Republican. Fact check true. Uh, you probably agree with more of the policies coming out of Washington right now than Congresswoman Escobar does. But at the same time, you are an El Paso homer. Your family has been here for generations. You love this community. Do you recognize El Paso in the national conversation? Uh, okay, is this working? Am I on? You're on. Yes. Go get them. Well, it, you know, at one point, I've, I've made comments about you know that we're essentially we're, we're ignored, and by we, the border 
uh, some of the issues that are, are very important to us uh, were really misunderstood, and we essentially ended up being demagogued, or some of our issues were demagogued with collateral damage to us, but for political purposes on the national. So what right. happened in the last year is those issues around immigration, uh, trade, uh, border uh, trade, uh, particularly with Mexico, have been elevated to the national dialogue. Right. So it essentially, where we had no platform to kind of define ourselves, um, we now have a platform. And I'm very happy to see that Veronica's taking advantage of that platform to bring people here that might right. otherwise have been here uh, before and to be able to speak out on a national basis. Uh, Mr. Hunt, you know that the, the being ignored is the same thing as being left alone, right? I mean, there's actually an advantage to being ignored. Yeah. You know, there are people who believe, and I suspect that over your life as a Republican and as a conservative, you've had this position that uh, less government is better. Government out of our business is better. So being ignored can translate into being left alone, and maybe that's a better thing. Right. No, Evan, because in this case, being ignored really created a perception around the reality of the border that was not the reality. So, And you didn't have to get that far from the border, even Dallas or Austin or Houston, where you had a different perception than what we would see as the reality. So the, that, the vacuum was necessarily filled by misinformation and, and misunderstanding and of the border. that gap was then used politically, actually starting at the state level in some right. of our state races, and yep. then ultimately in the 2016 uh, presidential election. Right. So st stay with that, Mr. Hunt. How would you define Top line, high level, how would you define the federal government's view of the border today, whether it's El Paso or the entire border region? What do you think the federal government thinks about the border today, as we sit here? And when you speak of the federal government, are you talking about at the very top? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I asked Congresswoman Escobar about the federal view of the border over the last year. I thought she was going to spend two minutes dunking on the president, which she didn't do. So maybe you want to talk about the president, Mr. Hunt. You, <laughs> it's, yeah, yes, she it's tells coming. me it's coming. Yeah, it's I, coming. Yeah, yeah, guess what? I knew before you did. Um, um, uh, Mr. Hunt, I mean, that's interesting. You know, maybe we need to define our terms. When we talk about the federal view of the border, do we mean an administration or this administration specifically? Do we mean Congress? Do we mean the judiciary? Do we mean some, some combination of those? Mm -hmm. You tell me. Well, I mean, if you look at it at, 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 from a presidential standpoint, clearly the 2016 election, the pathway to victory there was to deal with that perception or that gap along around trade right. and the impact of trade and around immigration and the impact of uh, immigration uh, and use that to gain uh, the votes necessary for, to, to win. And in our view, at least my view, used in a way that was, you know, was, was dealing with the perception, right. but not the reality of the board. So the 2016 campaign view was a negative rather than positive view. Absolutely. Do you think it's as negative today as it was back then? You think after three years plus well, that it's we, as we negative as it was? The, if you remember, it started uh, with a border adjustment tax, uh, a, a threat to repeal NAFTA, and then now the creation of USMCA. So hopefully the, the trade economic issues are behind us, but I, I do think the immigration issue will be a defining issue. And by immigration, not only comprehensive immigration reform, uh, but just how do we deal with the, the demands of migrants at our, at our, at our border. Right. Uh, I see that being the defining issue, or one of the very defining issues. Yeah, Congresswoman Escobar, the, uh, Mr. Hunt's correct that the political rhetoric at, at a moment of campaigning and elections, we hear about the border in maybe different terms than we do in the, in the white space between. We're heading back into a general election presidential race. We're probably going to hear about the border again in 2020. You think it'll be same song, different verse from the last election? I'm afraid it's going to be much worse. 
Um, you, you know, we we have seen our community not just used um, for purposes of demagoguery, but we've we've seen our community used essentially as a um, a prop, but also we've had a target put on our communities back by multiple uh, high-ranking elected officials all over the country, including our own state and including obviously the president. The There was a cooling by the president of his anti-immigrant rhetoric for a little while after the attack that occurred here on August 3rd, but we've seen it ramp up now in his rallies once again. And, um, you know, it's it's... We have a real choice in our country about how we're going to address big challenges. And we can either address them with fear as a weapon, or we can address them with eyes wide open and with um, strategic, thoughtful public policy. The president chooses not to use thoughtful public policy, but instead chooses to use fear. And it's worked for him in the past. It works. It, it's it's incredibly successful for him, and he preys on people's um, deepest darkest fears and their um, their concerns about the future. And he he uses immigrants as a tool to further divide us. And and because it has been such a successful strategy for him politically, we can see him using it again. And in, and indeed, he started the night of his State of the Union address. The, 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 I want to ask you, is there a disconnect, Congresswoman, between the rhetoric of a political campaign? I mean, everything you're saying stipulated. I think Mr. Hunt would agree that this has been largely the environment that we've all witnessed with our own eyes. But does the policy piece of this connect to the rhetoric? In other words, how much of this is just the kind of talk, however irresponsible it might be, during a campaign season? And how much of it is actually that talk translating into policy? It absolutely. The, the, so the Department of Homeland Security, which was already... Um, in many respects, just one of the most um, heavily funded agencies over a short period of time that we have in the federal government, and an agency that already in many ways was broken because it had grown so large and had, yep. had such little oversight and accountability for so long, it's now not just broken, it is completely shattered. Our asylum system has been um, also completely shattered. The Our, our role in the world as um, having you know, the higher moral authority about human rights, that's gone. All because of the way that that rhetoric has been translated into public policy. And we have a, a white nationalist in the White House who is driving immigration public policy. That's where we are. Mr. Hunt, would you like to retweet that or do you have a different point of view? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's... It was all going so well there until that last part. <laughs> Yeah. I, yes, so I think that the president is you know, a byproduct of an environment that has really become you know, hyper-partisan. Um, Do you think he's a symptom but not a cause? Yes, yes. I mean, he would not be where he is without the environment that was created before that. And that's an environment that a particular party, without any support from right. the other party, can pass major legislation. We saw that in 2009 in the Affordable Care Act. We saw it with the Democrats. We saw it in 2017 uh, with the Tax Reform Act that was totally Republican votes. The Republicans spent since 2009 trying to repeal the Affordable Care. If the Democrats win the House and the Senate and the President, 
uh, this year. I'm sure that they'll spend you know, a good a bit of time trying to repeal the 2017. That's not the way to govern. We have too many right. complex problems that can only be solved in an enduring way with bipartisan right. legislation. I, I want to ask you about some of this policy stuff, but something you said struck me that you thought that the president was a byproduct of an environment. So my memory, Mr. Hunt, is that you were not, at least initially, a supporter of President Trump's. You were not a supporter of candidate Trump in that primary. That would be true. That would be true. <laughs> and still true. Still true. So if, so if, um, if Senator Cruz or Governor Bush with an exclamation point or whomever it was ended up as the victor in that primary and not the candidate Trump, would we be in the same place? Would they not also be symptoms, not causes? I mean, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking you, does it matter? If, based on what you're saying, anybody who won the nomination and became, was elected president would have fallen victim to the same thing. Does leadership matter? I mean, in, in a decision, or can, could, could you lead the country in a different direction? And, and I, my answer would, I think leadership can matter. And so if you... Somebody else might have made a different choice. Might have made a different right. choice. Yeah. Mr. Hunt, do we... Immigration is often, and then the related issues of border security, the wall, remain in Mexico, which has come back on our radar screens again as a significant issue. All, that, that, that bucket of issues. That is where we typically go first when we talk about the border. That's not and the and the region. It's not where we should only go, but that's typically where we go first. Is that the right emphasis? Are we thinking about those issues correctly as sort of top of the agenda or first of mind? I think immigration is extremely important, but you shouldn't just think of the border. I mean, we we just happen to be at the meeting place, but this is really an right. in, international issue. I mean, if you're if you today, if you live in a less developed country, whether you're a highly trained professional or a day laborer, the single thing you can do for yourself or your family is to move to a developed country. And so it's not only the United States, it's Europe, it's any developed country today has, has challenges around people wanting to self-select right. in, into their... But because this is the point at which that conversation kind of begins, physically yes. begins, right. it's understandable that we would be at least thinking about that issue as a... Yes. As, a, as a priority for a conversation. You know, Congresswoman Escobar, I took Dr. Wilson, as I said, uh, very seriously when she said, just remember, when you think about the border, there is more to the conversation than immigration. There's a lot of other topics that are relevant. We do polling, I think you know, with the University of Texas quarterly. We just had a set of poll results come out this week, and we asked, as we have asked every quarter for 11 years, what are the issues most important to Texas? 31% of respondents said immigration or border security. This is not just people in El Paso, people along the border. Statewide, what is the most important issue to Texas? 31% said immigration or border security. Three times the next issue on the list, which we'll get to, which was health care. Clearly, the public in the state of Texas, not just along the border, but every place, believes, as Mr. Hunt said, this is important. And I hope that those poll numbers reflect a population and respondents who are dissatisfied with the status quo. And, and really, there should be no um, differences among any American about the status quo. The status quo is unacceptable. Um, now, it may be unacceptable for some for other reasons than, than why it's unacceptable to me. It's the, the inhumanity of how the American government is treating migrants and the complete disregard for US law is part of why it's unacceptable to me. But this is, this is why it's important for us to lead during moments of great challenge. Right. I just returned from a um, really incredible set of conversations this weekend 
overseas about challenges that we face across the globe. And the perspective that I brought was, you know, if we think mass migration is a challenge today, and it is far more of a challenge in Europe uh, than it is for us, than it ever has been for our country, just wait until the climate crisis reaches, um, you know, a, a point of no return. We may be at that point already. Soonish, right? Um, yeah, right. And, and we begin to see ec severe economic instability, severe food insecurity as a result of the climate crisis. You, you think crisis. we will then know what a real refugee crisis looks exactly. like? Exactly. And right. so it's, it is important for us to address this issue, not just in the context of how it impacts our communities, not just in the context right. of whether, you know, we think uh, there should be comprehensive immigration reform or not. But really, there's a larger context here that we have to recognize. Um, and I think El Paso, you asked um, uh, Mr. Hunt about, you know, El Paso and the border being known for immigration. The, the, that is a fact. I mean, the, uh, believe me, I'm trying to expand yes. the view of the border. We're going to be having an oversight committee field hearing in El Paso on bridge wait times because it's important to address the economic challenges that we have right. and the, the, the opportunities that we face as a community for the state and for the nation. But the reality is that we're facing a tremendous challenge and we need to lead. And I am very proud of the way that people in this community have led on that issue. Uh, Mr. Hunt, I heard Congresswoman Escobar say, and I understand why she went there, you know, well, if 31% of the state thinks that immigration and border security combined are the most important issue, I hope they're not satisfied with the status quo. Here are two other poll findings from that same series of polls. We asked Texans, do you believe that Texas uh, welcomes, admits too many immigrants, too few immigrants, or just the right amount? 38% of Texans, the highest percentage response in that poll, too many immigrants. Only 19% said too few. We also asked about the refugees who, uh, the, and the refugee policy. You know Governor Abbott on January, I think sometime in the middle of the month of January, announced that we would not accept uh, 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 refugees. Uh, he, it, I think 40 other states, Republican states and Democratic states, had said, yes, we will accept refugees. Governor Abbott was the first governor to say, we will not accept refugees. So we asked, should Texas accept more refugees who, by virtue of being refugees, have, of course, passed security clearance? Um, only 51%, basically this state is split, said that we should accept more refugees. Doesn't sound to me like Texans are necessarily dissatisfied with the status quo, yeah. right? I think if you look on an international basis, as far as foreign-born residents, in other words, residents in the country that were born somewhere else, the U.S. has the highest, not only the highest percentage, it has the highest absolute number. So, I mean, you can't really make an argument that we have not been welcoming to others because we've welcomed both on a percentage and an absolute basis more than any other country. Yeah. So, so, so if you so that's were, the backdrop, yeah, right, right. I think you see that. Yeah, if you were polled, Mr. Hunt, by the Texas Tribune and the University of Texas and been asked that question, does, do we as a state accept too many immigrants, too few, or the right number? How would you have responded? I'd probably be in the middle of that. You would say about the right number. Right. Congresswoman, you would have said too few? I, I, yes, I would say yep. too few, but and, and I want to qualify that yep. um, the the cap that the president has put on refugees and the dropping of the number of refugees that we have accepted um, is the lowest 
that it's been historically. And until we address the underlying root causes and, and use cruelty as public policy, then we're going in the wrong direction. You know that Congresswoman Escobar, although it's not called out specifically in this poll, we know that for a lot of people who say that we're accepting too many immigrants or that we should not be accepting more refugees, there's a concern about public safety, right? Is there a legitimate is there a legitimate conversation to be had about immigration and public safety? Here's here's the conversation that I think we should be having as a country and it's very difficult to have it when the minute that you want to open up that conversation opponents will immediately say well she's for open borders or he's for open borders you know trying to basically cut off any decent conversation about how we should address yeah. this challenge. Um, but we have to separate our national security threats from a humanitarian challenge. And as a country, we've completely intermingled those. So we treat every single immigrant as a criminal. And they are locked up. We have, we, but we have seen long-term detention increase significantly under this president. We have seen completely inhumane holding conditions in our community and other communities along the U.S.-Mexico border because we have chosen to address every immigrant and see every immigrant as a national security threat. And I have said this over and over, and I will continue to say it. Um, a mom and her baby fleeing violence is not a national security threat. Now, does that, does a, you know, do thousands of moms and babies and dads and children and single adults, do they present a challenge for our country? Yes, they do. But, I, but here's what I want to share with you, Evan, and everybody yeah. watching. Last year, early on in my, the first quarter of my, of my first term, I took a congressional delegation trip to the Middle East, and I went to Jordan, I went to Baghdad. When we were in Jordan, we toured what is presumably one of the most dangerous borders in the world, the, the border with Syria. There was not a wall to be seen. The way that they engaged in border security was through technology funded by the American taxpayer. And we asked that they take us to their uh, processing center, their immigrant yeah. processing center, because as you all know, you know, the, uh, talk about a refugee crisis when you have two million people arriving at your front door. That is a real crisis for a country, especially with limited resources like Jordan. So they took us to a processing center and they described what they do with immigrants who are not national security threats. They essentially link them up with families and with social services. Jordan, a, a country with far fewer resources than our own. And so I asked them, and this was at the height of when families were staying in our processing centers for 30 to 60 days in inhumane conditions. I asked them, how long does it take you to process migrants? And they kind of were wringing their hands and, um, you know, a little bit sheepishly said, well, we're, we're trying to improve on how long it takes. Right now, it, it takes about two hours. That is, that is Jordan, two my hours. friends. That is Jordan. Right. And so, in, but in our country, again, and Woody said it, leadership matters. When you have leaders at the top wanting you to fear some of the most vulnerable human beings on the planet, and the, the, the way that we address that challenge is through cruelty. Of course, the polls are going to reflect that. Yeah, let me ask Woody about that. Do you think that there is, Mr. Hunt, a legitimate conversation around public safety here? Public safety? No. Yeah. No. I mean, if you look at all the data on foreign born, I mean, 
Right. Maybe in the sense if you had totally open borders and you're right. uncontrolled. But for, for the immigration that we've had to date, you look at the data as far as uh, foreign-born, whether documented or undocumented, yep. and their incarceration rates are below the numbers just don't square you, with you the You can perception. always find right. and demagogue a particular incident of someone that's undocumented that right. committed a horrendous crime. But if you look at all the data, yeah. it, 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 it's that's not the picture you get. Do you, do you accept uh, the characterization of what's happening along the border as a humanitarian crisis? Well, it, well, certainly for those that are that are engaged and are trapped, but it gets back to the data that you mentioned earlier. To me, there is no consensus that's going to open these borders. That, that right. we will, so if you want a bipartisan, comprehensive yeah. immigration reform, it's going to, to be a question of how many, what level of self-selection that people that just want to come can come versus criteria that we set. And obviously someone's not coming unless they want to come, but are we going to set right. the criteria upon which they become members of our society? And do they become citizens? If you go to the Middle East, I mean, Veronica quoted the Middle East, go a little farther south to places that have a lot of resource, Dubai, for example, only 15% of their residents are citizens. The other 85% right. have no rights, no public education, right. no public health, and once they no longer have a job, they have to leave. So the status conversation is a legitimate conversation, even if the public safety conversation may be overblown. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Hunt, let me move the conversation away uh, from immigration to uh, trade and to the economy. I know that you have banged the drum for some time on the importance of trade and the border economy. USMCA is a good thing or a bad thing for El Paso, as you see it? I see it as a good thing. I mean, our future is really tied to international trade because that's what connects us to world markets and the incomes that go with being tied into a world supply chain. Right. What was wrong with NAFTA? I thought we had a trade agreement. I mean, it, I don't think there was a lot wrong. It, it didn't pick Couldn't up. Couldn't you have just told the president that the T in NAFTA stood for Trump? Maybe he would have left it alone. <laughs> yeah, it was largely political, but it didn't pick up. The digital world, uh, NAFTA, because that really happened after. Right. It didn't pick up energy deregulation in Mexico, although that's kind of being reversed. So there were some reasons to modify. I mean, all of the drama that went along, I think, was unnecessary. Uh, but I think we could have made those modifications in a much less confrontational but way. But however, however the, the, the road twisted and turned, the, the destination where we ended up was good, you think? Well, I think it's no right. worse and hopefully a, a, a small benefit. I don't think it's going to be a remarkable benefit. Right, right. Congresswoman Escobar, I heard your response to the State of the Union in which you said, among many other things I want to talk about today, that you believe that the USMCA, as it ended, the process ended, good, but that it was good in part because you and your fellow Democrats made modifications to it that made it good, that you would not have been comfortable with it in the form it was originally proposed. You are, however, prepared to say, to stipulate, it's good for this community. I, I, I completely agree with Woody. I yeah. think, you know, we'll see um, what kind of changes it brings. I don't, I don't know that they will be, there will be radical changes. I, I think the... Um, um, in the, I think there's an opportunity through the NADBank funding that we got in there. I think uh, for some, for many communities with waterways, there's there's environmental protections that are really good that were put, put in place by Democrats. I think there's more right. labor protections that were put in by Democrats that are good um, and strong. I think the best thing that came out of NAFTA is that that it's behind or USMCA or or NAFTA 
1.8, is that it's behind us, is that now there's stability. There was a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety. There was definitely uncertainty, wasn't there? The uncertainty is horrible. I mean, you you talk to economic development folks everywhere, business people everywhere, there's nothing worse than the uncertainty. I mean, so there was the anxiety that the president would rip up the... Uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and if that were to happen, the chaos that would ensue. So that's been settled. Do you think generally, Congresswoman, that the border economy is good? We know that the national economy right now, I mean, you could argue about aspects of it, and I know you will, whether we're providing an economy that that works for everybody, and that's been a, a, a conversation that you and others and your party at least have had. But, you know, the Dow is where it is. The Dow's at a record or near record. The unemployment rate nationally is at, a, you know, a low. I mean, there's an argument that can be made that the strength of the economy is as it presents. Um, state economy is pretty good. Is the border economy as good as the state economy and as good as the national economy? So I would not necessarily agree with you that the economy is good. There are some very good indicators um, that should be celebrated and that should be looked at as um, great strengths. But we know that the wealth gap has widened to its greatest level ever. And um, we're not addressing it. When we try to gloss over any negative, you know, this this is one of... Um, I think the lessons that I learned as a local elected of, official, if you ignore the the real challenges and the real problems and you just want to focus on cheerleading what you think is a positive, then those chronic issues just get kicked down the can. You know, we have a national deficit that is out of control. We well, talk about it frequently in our caucus meetings. Well, I want, yeah, I, want um, to come back, I want to come to the deficit in a second. I think that's a very important point. Yeah. So, but And with the border economy, El Paso is has done really, really well. And the, the credit goes to um, a huge cross-section of people, um, you know, folks like Woody and other business community leaders, um, elected officials, uh, you know, the private and the public sector. And, and it, it, took, it took a lot of work to do that. I mean, you look at our transportation infrastructure, you look at our healthcare infrastructure, you look at quality of life, you look at downtown. El Paso's made incredible gains. Our, I remember when our... Um, Unemployment rate was twice the national average. You know, those are that's in the past. Long past. But um, we do face challenges as a community, um, and and I think it's really important for us always to reflect on where we've been successful. And our challenges remain. um, You know, we're losing some talent, and we our wages are not growing at the rate that would make us competitive with some of our regional. Competitors, even like Albuquerque as an example. So we have to work on that. And yep. we, we have to come together and identify the sectors and the areas that are opportunities that we have not fully leveraged. Well, you mentioned wages in particular in your response to the State of the Union. You also mentioned pensions, right? That there's, there's concerns about pensions and wages as components of the economy that we have work still to be, to be done on. Now, Mr. Hunt, how do you feel about the border economy at the moment? Well, I mean, and when I, we talk about the border, I'm more knowledgeable here. We did have, I think, a good bit of deferred investment going through the NAFTA negotiations. Yeah. I think you'll see that later on the panel that we're seeing some of those investors return, and hopefully that will be positive as far as employment growth. Our employment growth has slowed down. Right. Uh, 
uh, so, uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic that as the supply chain, uh, and particularly as the supply chain risk become more apparent with China, that we're going to see you know, a resourcing back uh, to North America and disproportionately that will go to Mexico. And that, but that'll benefit us. And that will go, yeah. some of that will, in Mexico will go to, to our sister city in Juarez and that will help drive our regional economy. Yeah. So in that sense, I'm, that long, intermediate to longer term trend, right. I'm positive on. Do you think workforce development in this community, whether it's through the door of a four-year institution like the University of Texas El Paso, or I know Dr. Serrata is here, the community colleges of our state have more than 50% of the higher ed enrollment, so much of the future workforce of the state is coming through or beginning at least at the doors of community colleges. Are we doing okay on that aspect of the economy? I think we're much more focused on that. I mean, we now have the business and civic community working w with and, and in dialogue with right. K through 12 as, far, as well as community college and, and our regional comp comprehensive university. So that's a much more engaged effort because the realization is post-secondary uh, completions of your workforce in, in terms of college degrees in your workforce drive your income levels, drives your quality of life, drives your competitiveness. As, as right, the, da the data for all that is right in front of us. You, you, you cannot go up right. the income scale if you don't go up the education scale. Congresswoman, you, you uh, uh, teed uh, up the question of deficits as a part of the conversation around the economy, and I'm glad you did because I wanted to, to bring that up as well. You know, Mr. Hunt, I'll say, although I'm going to ask this question to Ms. Escobar, I remember a time when... Uh, when conservatives hated deficits, right? And in fact, campaigned at election time against ballooning deficits and in, in elective office said, we have a huge problem with deficits and now we have skyrocketing deficits um, uh, and, and getting bigger every minute. I, I noted today that the El Paso Times in endorsing Senator Cornyn for re-election uh, in his party's primary, in his party, well, don't you, I, yes, you can make all the faces you want. I, I realize that. I'm kind of in your house. Do whatever you want, fine. But they also endorse a Democrat in the primary. But, uh, but they, endorsing Senator Cornyn in his primary felt compelled to say, in essentially the however paragraph, his stewardship of the federal budget is troubling when it comes to deficits. I mean, C Congresswoman, I think there's an acknowledgement that the deficits are bad for all of us, but we don't seem to be doing much to address it. You want to say a word about that? You know, I, I, I want to, I do, and I want to backtrack a little bit because we are, we have been talking about it um, as a caucus, how we begin to use, I'll, I'll give you an example of where the conversation came up within leadership. When we, right before we were going to pass HR3, which is the prescription bill, um, the Elijah Cummings lower prescription drug bill uh, intended to give the federal government um, the ability to negotiate drug costs and to cap drug costs. B really a revolutionary bill in terms of um, how it would save money, save people money on their drug costs. Really one of the things that I hear frequently over and over again on insulin costs and other things. Um, we talked about where we could use the savings. And one of the conversations was, we probably need, you know, could use some of this savings. We could either A, further lower the cost of health care, or B, begin to tackle the deficit. So we're having those conversations about how we begin to propose some solutions. Right. But I will tell you, I, I feel like we're having this conversation as though we're dealing with the the Republican Party of the past. There are still traditional Republicans left 
who I really enjoy having dialogue and discussion right. and debate with, but the, the, the folks in Washington, in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, they are, they're, they are no longer, in right. my view and in my experience, led by the values of the Republican Party. They are led by their loyalty to one person. Well, and this is a conversation about the federal view of the border, so I'm focusing on the Republicans there. I mean, Mr. Hunt, you understand. It's the Democrats are talking about reducing deficits, and the Republicans are allowing deficits to balloon at the federal level. It's like Freaky Friday, right? Yes. What happened? Well, and, and deficits, one, are appropriate if you're 2008 or nine and your economy's upside down. And you have to, you have to uh, uh, stimulate the economy. Right. right. Yeah. If you're 2020 and your unemployment rate's three and a half percent, you don't want to see deficits where they are because if we do have uh, a circumstance where the economy weakens, we're really not in a position to spend more money. So it's it's not good economic You, you would say that the, the current situation with the deficit is ultimately bad for a community like this one and for a region like right. this one. Deficits in themselves right. are not necessarily bad. It's a question of level and, 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 and when you use them. And getting to the, I do think there, there's been a change uh, to where you, at the president level, obviously he is depending on a different or somewhat different or an expansion of, of the base that was non-traditional and which really wants government spending uh, and and is less concerned about deficits. Yeah. Uh, Congresswoman, I want to ask you about health care. Uh, you know, uh, I heard you again in the State of the Union response call out health care specifically as a priority, not just for this community and this region, but for the country from your party's perspective. It's probably going to be, if not the top issue to be litigated in the fall campaign, but it'll be one of those. Um, in 2018, 26% of residents of El Paso County were uninsured. That is compared to 19% of Texans and 11% of Americans. So El Paso County residents are more than twice as likely to be uninsured as the average American and 50% more likely to be uninsured than Texans on average. And that's actually the good news. If you move over farther uh, east along the border, Cameron County, Hidalgo County, Star County, Webb County, the uninsured rates are in the 30s. In fact, four of the five most uninsured counties in the entire country are along the Texas-Mexico border. El Paso County happens not to be one of those. Right now, a higher percentage of residents of El Paso County are uninsured than have a bachelor's degree. So my question to you is, um, how do we elevate the healthcare issue for the benefit of this community, and how does the federal view of healthcare at the moment either work for or work against the border region? Well, and you referenced my State of the Union response, and we purposefully had it at a community clinic because I, I wanted to drive the point home that we are a, a community that relies on those community clinics for healthcare in the absence of a national federal healthcare system and in a state that refuses to expand the Affordable Care Act. And a state that is leading the way in trying to dismantle uh, the Affordable Care Act in court, a, a court case that is supported by the president. Um, you know, when the, the I, every town hall meeting, and um, there are times when I'm at grocery stores or, or running errands, I hear about healthcare every single time I am home. So it is absolutely a pressing issue and folks are very afraid that 
the protections for those folks with pre-existing conditions, for example, will be taken away. And let's be clear, that is exactly what the president is trying to do, the president and uh, the Republicans in Congress and in the Senate. That's precisely what they want to do. Um, I have been very frustrated by the national presidential debates in that the focus has been on attacking each other's health care plans when the focus, in my view, should be what lies ahead for us in terms of health care, should the president get reelected? Well, it is a, but Congresswoman, it is a I primary. Know. I mean, they I have know. they have to take each other's heads off. Tell me that last night was not just delightful. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the, the first 10 minutes of that debate last night was they were just wiping blood off of the stage. I mean, it was, uh, Mr. Hunt, you're a Republican and you're a conservative, whether or not you recognize Republicanism and conservatism in the current <laughs> federal landscape. Um, what do you think we should do about health care? I suspect that you probably were not the biggest fan in the world of the Affordable Care Act when implemented 10 years ago, right? Well, I mean, I see it in a bigger context, which gets back to Veronica's yeah. uh, comments on income inequality. Uh, I mean, the market system that we use to allocate resources, create incentives, has created the largest economy, you know, the world has ever known by all, any and all measures. Our question is distribution. Health is one of those issues. Is how do we allocate resources in a way to, which deals with income inequality, either directly or indirectly by, right. by subsidizing health care? How do we do that in a way that doesn't uh, essentially upset our, our ability to create growth and, and create wealth? And my argument would be would we need to use markets to redistribute just like we use markets to, to create But wealth. does that mean the government gets largely out of the business of providing this uh, health care, which I know Congresswoman Escobar believes is not a privilege but a right to everybody? Do you believe that government should play less of a role in being the facilitator of that? I think government has to intervene in the outcomes of the market right. to try to correct the excesses that are dangerous for our political system yeah. and to rebalance, but they need to use intervention softly and with markets uh, with, and not building a bureaucracy uh, to, to try to allocate those. And is that, you know, uh, tw I believe 20% of El Pasoans are in poverty, the last statistic that I mm -hmm. saw. Um, fourth, the fourth highest poverty rate among the major communities in this state. The others, by the way, are all also along the border. Um, is that solution, Mr. Hunt, let the market drive with government filling in where it needs to, the right solution for a community where one out of five people is in poverty? I mean, I think so, if you've got the right interventions. I mean, if you look at El Paso... You trust the markets to do the right, to step in and, and, and provide the right thing or to do the right thing here. We have a, a responsibility to react. Right. 1950 census, our education level was 20%, post-secondary college level was 20% above the state yep. of Texas. Our income level was 14% above. By the 2000 census, 50 years later, we're 30% below on both measures. Whose responsibility is that? Was that the federal government's lack, uh, or was that our civic, political, business leadership failure to make the right strategic decisions along the way and not let ourselves get into that? Into so, that you, so, you, so you call out your colleagues in this room and elsewhere in the community for not doing what they should be doing along with the government? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Congresswoman, you will notice if you check IP addresses that I went to your website today, and it was in part because of that blood on the stage debate last night. And I thought to myself, well, they're all fighting about health care, what they think we ought to do. I wonder what Congresswoman Escobar's position on health care is at the moment. And you say, very expressly, I believe we need a single-payer health care system. That is the artist formerly known as Medicare for All, is it not? 
You know, I I am going to support, the, and and let me first say, I yeah. I believe very strongly that we have to be aspirational, and that we have to put our marker down. And I try to do that in bills that I support yeah. and in. Um, the way that I approach the big challenges. You put down your marker, be as aspirational as possible. But I am, and so in that respect, I'm very much a progressive. But I am a pragmatist as well. And I believe that being able to sustain change takes incremental change. And I would rather make incremental progress year in and year out than have bloody battles over aspirational um goals that uh, you know may not happen right away and and you'd lose the window of opportunity so the reason that you don't come out and say i'm for medicare for all is because you're not well ish you know i mean i um <laughs> i uh i'm on the bill medicare on... for ish that's the new <laughs> that, that that is congresswoman escobar's position as you go into the fall campaign medicare for ish i i am for any and all incremental pieces of legislation or right. appropriations changes or administrative changes that will get us to where everybody in this country is covered. That's the ultimate goal, right. Uh, in the remaining time we have, and then I want to just note we have questions, uh, uh, the capability to encourage you all to join in and ask questions. We have microphones at the, on the two sides. I want to just ask one more thing. On the subject of 2020, Congresswoman Escobar, you know we have a presidential campaign in full swing. What would be the best outcome and specifically who would be the best outcome for this community and this region? Name names. <clears throat> Seriously. Uh, so I have not endorsed. Right. Um, I'm asking I, you to do that now. And I'm, I'm not going to endorse. Right. Uh, not yet. I, I don't know. You totally know who you're voting for. Come on. I actually don't. Seriously? Um, seriously. I'm voting on Friday because I won't be back in El Paso for two weeks. And I, I, so I need you're going to gonna decide tomorrow ballot. between now and tomorrow? I am. I am. Uh, but, but let Can me... Can you give us a hint? <laughs> it's, it's a battle between my head and my heart is what it is. Um, but I will tell you, one of the things that is of great concern to me is I ultimately want a candidate that's going to help heal the country. I ultimately want a candidate that is going to bring us together as, as much as we possibly can. I want a candidate that is pragmatic and a candidate who will work with everyone. Um, I want a candidate who will have a plan for how to approach um, the Republicans formerly known as Trumpsters once he's out of office um, and, a, and a, a, a plan for the country. But I also want a candidate for whom the border is important. And I want a candidate who's, you know, going to make commitments about the border, about immigration, about trade, about the economy. And I've had those conversations with three candidates, um, with Elizabeth Warren, with Joe Biden, and um, uh, Mr. Bloomberg and I have had some conversation, but we keep missing each other's calls. Um, he was obviously busy preparing for that debate last yes. night. Just, ki just yes. kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, is it down to those three? There's a, another one that I'm considering. Oh, God. <laughs> let, let me, can I tell I you? I love a cliffhanger, no, no, but seriously, come on. I can, I can on. tell you, um, yeah. I've, I've been very impressed by Amy Klobuchar. Okay. Um, so all of my okay. progressive peeps right. are going to be really mad at there's me. A, there's a name missing on that list, Mr. Hunt, and that is Bernie Sanders, who you may know is going to be in El Paso on Saturday. Is he doing a fundraiser at your house? No. No. <laughs> But you seem so liberal today. Comparatively, I thought you were just going to go full-on Bernie bro on me, actually, sitting up here on stage. 
You don't seem like a Bernie bro to me. Um, how does the 2020 election, Mr. Hunt, in your point of, in, in your view, impact this community? And then we're going to go to questions from the audience. Well, I mean, once again, the leadership at the time, I mean, the issues around immigration and trade, which we hope are behind us, have yeah. disproportionately impacted us in, in an unfavorable way. Uh, so to, to the issues that we have a leader there, it takes a different view on trade and particularly on immigration as far as the rhetoric, um, because I think the policies are going to be much more difficult for anybody to move too far from a consensus in the in the country. I think that makes a difference. I mean, it helps yep. deal with this gap between perception and reality that I referred yep. to earlier. You're going to vote for Mr. Trump? <laughs> I no. The El Paso Times is here. Look at Tim, Tim Archuleta is here. Look at him directly, actually, when you said. Are you going to Are you going to vote for the president? No. Will you vote Will you vote for a Democrat, Mr. Hunt? Yes. My head will blow up. Really, seriously. Well. I, Really? You know, Senator Rodriguez, we don't normally make news at these events, but that, that probably walked up to the line. You are going full, you are going full Bernie bro on me, aren't you? No. You're not, okay. Let's, uh, we have about uh, 10, 12 minutes left. I want to encourage you to come up and ask questions. We'll go from one side to the other. We'll take as many as time permits. We've got to stop at 9.30 so we can give everybody a break before our next panel. Sir. Uh, hi, so my question is for Representative uh, Escobar. Immigration has been largely absent in the debates uh, as well as international trade. Uh, what would be the best way to get the candidates to actually pay attention to these issues uh, that, you know, Mr. Smith said are so much a bigger concern to Texans compared to healthcare, which has been the lead? That has been, and I think there's two different things there. What, what, what happens, the conversation during the debates, but the, the platforms of the nominees, or the, the candidates, I'm sorry. So the candidates have platforms, and um, for the most part, their, their platforms are very good on immigration. The challenge is getting moderators to ask those questions. So I don't- It hasn't come up very much in the debates. That's right, right. Yeah. I have not, I don't blame the candidates for the moderator's complete disregard for what is a really pressing national issue that, that I think we need a, a, a good conversation about. Because again, as I mentioned before, if we think we have seen a refugee situation like none other before, we, we are really kidding ourselves. This is the beginning of what will be, I think, um, more global mass migration, including within our hemisphere. And um, I do have another question for uh, Mr. Hunts, if I may. Um, uh, okay, sure, quick, quick one. Yeah. Uh, again, with, with, uh, when it comes to the primaries, um, a lot of the candidates aren't very, um, let's say, open-minded about free trade, at least not some of the leading ones. Uh, what would be, you know, if you had them in the audience or if they're watching the live stream by any chance or any other team members, what would you say to them uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, accepting free trade a little more, things that are important in our region? I think, unfortunately, trade confrontation and bilateral trade agreements, as opposed to a, what we've had now is really an attempt to have world trade, that both on both sides are moving in that direction. I think that's unfortunate. Um, free trade, if you want to call it that, for the lowest possible friction among all the borders is the way to create world wealth. 
uh, and not focus on how you distribute it between countries, but how you create a more, a more competitive world. I mean, we've taken so many people, not in this country necessarily, but in other countries, and have put them in the middle class. We're talking about a billion people uh, you know, over the last 10 years. I mean, it's enormous impact of rural trade. Even though there's some places that have been hurt, you've got to look at the net benefit to the world and humanity, and it's been huge from free trade. Sir, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have a question for Ms. Escobar. Uh, you talked about wanting somebody that will work across the aisle and, and, and work with both sides. Yet I look at your voting history during your first period of time and everything that the president has supported you have voted against. What will you do differently when he gets reelected this time to make sure that you work across the aisle with, with uh, the president? I see what you did there with the win. That was a, I <laughs> The Got president has actually signed some of our legislation into law. Not, not a whole lot has made it through Senator Mitch McConnell, but that which has, has been signed into law by the president. So, um, you know, that, that uh, demonstrates the fact that on those occasions, obviously the, the House, the Senate, the president, myself included as a member of the House, are on the same page. USMCA, uh, I voted for and supported. Um, I, you, you know, we'll see what happens in 2020. I would argue um, our community, our country, we, we have to really take a long look at what's happened over the last few years and how we have treated our allies, how we have treated the most vulnerable, how we have um, refused to deal with the pending cli climate catastrophe that's ahead, um, and whether you know we feel that that this president has exemplified our values. You know, I think you all know how I feel, and so my hope is that we don't have another. Right, but, but of course, I'm going to take the when, and I'm going to turn it into a should. Should he be elected? Do you see the opportunity over the knowing that you've got four years? You can either decide. I'm going to oppose everything he does because yeah. I actually oppose it or just because I choose to oppose it as a member of the opposing party. Yeah. But do you we, see so any the, benefit in trying to work more closely with the other side? Where, wherever there is something good, of course we would work together. Of course. And that's why I provided right. USMCA and other pieces of legislation as an example. Um, but where there is an erosion of law, erosion of values, where there are economic... Um, decisions being made that are harmful to us, of course I would oppose it. Got it. Hi. Hi. So I'm here with, um, in representation of Kennedy ISD and EPCC with Northwest Early College students as well. Great. And I just have, um, in teaching state and local government, a lot of the sentiment of our students is the idea that in Texas politics, there's not really a, a role that the youth can play or uh, even thinking that it will change anything that that Texas politics will change. So, in just uh, wondering, what do you think the political climate is within your office, and if you really are willing to work uh, in a bipartisan basis? Let me let Congresswoman Escobar start, but I want to ask Mr. Hunt a question about this as well. Go ahead. So, the question is whether I'm, I want to work in a bipartisan basis, and then the second question is: Is there a place for young people? Well, it's about the emergence of young people as yeah. a force, and is there really a place for them in the conversation and at the table? There is absolutely a place for them at the table, and we need them. Um, the the 
decisions that we're making today in particular about climate change. Um, almost every young person, I'll tell you, that, that I come into contact with or you know, either when I go to speak to students or at town hall meetings when they attend, their number one concern is the climate crisis. We're having a town hall meeting in April focused specifically on the climate crisis and we're going to be reaching out to the schools. We want young people to attend. The focus of that town hall meeting is what we can each do in our own lives in the absence of any federal changes what can we do and what we consume, how we consume it, what are, what are things that, that, that are within our own power. And we especially want young people to be a part of it because they then can help change their household, they can influence their peers. And many times what I have found is, is especially for young people and for women, they get involved in politics because of an issue. Not because they think, I want to be involved in politics, but there's something motivating them. And so we're hoping, um, you know, not a Democrat or Republican involvement, but civic engagement yep. will come through that conversation. Uh, Mr. Ren, I want to ask you about this because, you know, unlike Congresswoman Escobar, you and I are old, right? We're sort of the, <laughs> we're on the downside of the mountain, right? right. Um, the, the fact is that in the 2022 statewide elections in Texas, just around the corner, you think that this election cycle is it. No, just over the rise, we have another set of statewide elections. In 2022, one out of every three eligible voters in Texas is going to be under the age of 30. That is not to say that the electorate will be that heavily weighted in favor of young people, but eligible voters in 2022, one out of every three will be under the age of 30. It is no longer a question of whether young people are taking the baton from us, right? I mean, that's it. And so the bucket of issues that we heard referred to, at least at the moment, don't necessarily benefit the party that you are in and the party that is currently in power in Texas. So political change potentially could be driven by demographic change. Without a doubt. I right? mean, yeah. in, in which I have conveyed to wherever I have a chance to the leadership uh, on the Republican side in the state, if the Republican Party does not look like the state, it's not sustainable. And that's in terms, and, and by the Republican Party, elected officials, House, Senate, right. and statewide elections, if they don't look right. like in terms of gender and ethnicity, right. it's not a sustainable It's not party. just the Texas government is whiter than the state and maler than the state, it's also older than the state, Without right? So yeah. It's, yeah, it's a question of age, but I think as much so gender, because you look at Bernie Sanders, I mean... It I mean, seriously, yeah. A, you know, as you can tell, Congresswoman <laughs> Escobar's party is doing really well among the 78 and older crowd, <laughs> right? Yeah, the Democrats don't exactly have this thing locked up on the youth vote either. I don't know. Um, That's exactly all right, right yeah. good. Uh, the question over there. We're, we have time for maybe one or possibly two more. Ma'am. Thank you. My name is Cherie Hallberg, and I'm a teacher. First, I'd like to thank Mr. Hunt and Texas Tribune and Congresswoman Escobar. Congresswoman, I would love to see you as a professor at an Ivy League college as a lady, a Hispanic lady. And I would really love to see you look at that possibility in the future. Um, for all parties concerned, as a teacher, I don't like labels on my pillows, I don't like labels on my blankets, and I sure don't like labels on people. And I think we need to stop with the rhetoric of white, brown, black. How about we just go with humanity and with human beings? Um, that being please. said, yeah. Yeah. Question, yes, please. sir. Um, as a former teacher of U.S. government, if I were to look at the history, I believe the website is USCIS, there's a tremendous amount of information going back decades regarding people who have been rejected to be allowed into the United States. So the question please, is, please. 
with this talk of immigration, are we speaking legal immigration, illegal immigration? I consider myself a humanitarian. Can you please assist me in clarification of this? Congresswoman. A large percentage of the people arriving at our front door are requesting asylum protection. Not all of them, but a large majority. This administration has chosen to completely obliterate the asylum system as we know it. Um, so individuals who are in the legal asylum system are being sent to a country, not their own, to await their American court hearing. Their hearings are months away. They have no way to, to have a job in Mexico. They have no family to stay with. And they have become victims of organized crime. We have heard from lawyers and advocates about um, parents disappearing, uh, people being kidnapped, extorted, women being sexually assaulted. This is what's happening um, as a result of the Trump administration's assault on immigration. But each one of those individuals applying for legal asylum protection have the legal right to participate in due to, to receive due process, and they have every right to await their hearing in the United States. There are folks who have not requested asylum protection, and they are fleeing their country for reasons that unfortunately aren't covered by the asylum process. Mm -hmm. But many of the individuals that I've met along the way over the last year, I would say a large percentage of them have a family member who's been in this country working for an American corporation or an American farmer or an American meat packer or an American construction company and that wife now wants to be reunited with her husband or that son wants to be reunited with his mother and i feel that we and 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 when they when they are not requesting asylum protection they are undocumented immigrants but i think we have to look ourselves in the mirror as a country those migrants that were okay to work in those corporations and help those American corporations make profits, that they now dare want to be reunited with their family. And we say, nope, shut the door. You were good enough to work uh, in building our homes. You were good enough to work in our meatpacking plant. Or you were good enough to pick the um, fruits and vegetables on our field, fields that feed us. But you're not good enough to be reunited with your family. I think we have a real reckoning. We have to ask ourselves if that's the country we want to be. Thank you. All right. Um, I, uh, Congresswoman, thank you. I apologize to people waiting in line for questions. Unfortunately, we're out of time and we're trying to keep to the schedule today. We have another panel discussion at 945. Please uh, thank Congresswoman Escobar and Mr. Hunt for being with us today. Thank you all for being such a good audience. We will be back in a few minutes with our next program. Thank you.